to Out of the Box Radio with me, your host, Christine Blasdale. Out of the Box Radio is a weekly podcast of audible ear candy dedicated to bringing a fresh perspective on this thing that we call life. And each and every week, we're going to be diving into the topics that matter most with lively conversations on issues such as health, wellness, and transformational healing, all with the goal of creating a better world and becoming a happier human being. I will be your tour guide for this epic adventure, and each and every week we're going to be embarking on a journey with the ultimate goal being transformation to our highest potential. And now, let's get out of the box. Hello everyone and welcome to Out of the Box Radio. I am your host, Christine Blasdale, and today we are doing a follow-up program. Not too long ago I did an interview with one H.G. Tudor, who is a self-proclaimed, well, uh, actually has been diagnosed as a narcissistic sociopath who, as part of his growing awareness and treatment, has been writing about how he and his kind behave and what goes through their minds in order to provide people, victims, with insight and enlightenment. And the program that we did was so successful and had such great response, I decided to to ask HG back on Out of the Box Radio so we can explore a little bit more about the world of a narcissist, what happens to folks who get caught up in the narcissist world as well. And from my perspective during the show, I really want to offer ways for, for people to heal and to, to just wrap their head around it and to go beyond just the sort of, uh, the well, the anger and the hurt and the destruction that happens when one falls into a relationship or connection with a narcissist. So I want to welcome back to the program, H.G. Tudor. H.G., welcome back. Thank you, Christy. Thank you for inviting me back. For people who are not familiar with the term narcissist uh, or narcissistic Mm -hmm. behavior, if you don't mind, I know we explained a little bit about this in the first program, but let's go back over that. A narcissist, in particular, what you are, Let's mm-hmm. let's talk about that. What is a narcissist in general? A narcissist is an individual that, in clinical terms, satisfies certain criteria that have been set down in the DSM guide, which sets out a number of disorders. And everybody has narcissistic traits. So one has traits whereby one think, may think highly of oneself. One may have traits in terms of being grandiose, for example. And if somebody has a couple of those traits and in a mild form, there is nothing untoward about that. And indeed, many people refer to having healthy narcissistic traits. But there comes a point when a collection of those indicative criteria under the DSM are met and in a certain degree of strength that constitutes a finding that an individual is suffering from narcissistic personality disorder. And so one of the most telling uh, of those criteria is the fact that the individual has no empathy, is incapable of feeling concern for others and putting themselves in the shoes of others. From my perspective, my diagnosis was of a narcissistic sociopath, whereby 
the extent of my narcissism is such that it coincides with antisocial traits as well, which would be diagnosed under antisocial personality disorder. And what I've done in terms of my work and the work that I've been undergoing by way of treatment is that one can categorize narcissists on a spectrum. So if you take a spectrum and on the far left, one has empathic individuals, so they will have very few narcissistic traits and indeed will have a lot of empathic traits. So they are honest, they are decent, they are devoted to the concept of love, they seek the truth and they care considerably for other people. And indeed, some of those empathic traits can be such that an individual, if they were watching a film where somebody suffers a loss, say their child dies, the empathic individual feels just as upset as the individual in the film. They feel such a connection. So those empathic individuals on the far left, in the middle, you have what I call the normals. And those are people who have very few empathic traits, a handful of them, and they'll have a few narcissistic traits. That's the middle ground. And then we move to the right. And the more you move to the right, the more narcissistic traits appear, the greater they are in strength until they reach the definition of narcissistic personality disorder. And that is where you meet the lesser narcissist. And the lesser narcissist is an individual whose cognitive function is lower than usual and they have a lower threshold in terms of the self-control that they exhibit. They have a number of other traits, but for the time being, those two suffice in terms of definition. Move further to the right, and the cognitive function increases along with the narcissistic traits, and you have the mid-range narcissist. And those individuals tend to have the hallmark of being quite passive-aggressive in the way that they behave. They sulk, they dole out silent treatments, they have a reasonable amount of charm, and they have a greater degree of self-control over their actions and the fury that rages inside. And then we move further to the right again, and that is where I reside. As a greater, or a narcissistic sociopath, highly calculating, cognitive function increased even further, utterly devoid of empathy, and only thinks about oneself. And the difference is that where I am, I have an awareness of what I am. The lesser and the mid-range do not know what they are. They have no insight. And if you were to tell them they were a narcissist, the lesser probably wouldn't even understand the word. And the mid-range, <laughs> the mid-range would um, reject it and probably turn around and say, no, you are the narcissist. Yeah, right. So essentially there is a sort of rough guide to what I refer to as the sort of empathic and narcissistic continuum. And the interesting thing to note about all of that, Christine, is that if one looks at it as a straight line, those who are particularly empathic, codependents and what I call super empaths, and we can return to that later, are over to the far left. Normal's in the middle, and then your narcissist to the right. But if you were to imagine them as a clock face, and if you imagine that the empaths occupy the space between 11 and 12 o'clock, and the narcissists occupy the space between 12 and 1 o'clock. If one goes clockwise, they're a long way apart. But if one goes anti-clockwise, 
from narcissist to empath, they're very close together. Because interestingly, there are similarities in terms of our behaviours, because my kind need empathic individuals to the extent that empathic individuals feel uh, or have a need to have a narcissist in their life. Would you say that the empathic, uh, that empathic people are, are the are the chosen victims of the narcissist because of that um, of that ability to feel and to love, or does that matter when the or does does the narcissist even even think that? It matters considerably. Uh-huh. Uh, when I talk about an empathic individual, I attach to it a particular description. I know that there are those when they refer to empaths, refer to it as somebody who feels in tune, if you will, with the world, that they can almost sense um, emotions and that they can feel, um, probably the easiest way to think of it is that they feel like it's the force from Star Wars, that they can feel a disturbance in, in the force. When I talk about empaths, I don't mean it in that sense, but that's not to say that that description's wrong. I just use it in a different way in terms of the concept of empathy, namely uh, caring about people. And those who are empathic have these various traits, which I have identified through my many years of interaction with empathic individuals, and also as a consequence of my engagement with my good doctors, whereby they have traits of honesty, decency, fidelity. Um, They seek the truth. They must know the truth. They... Uh, and such like. Now, my kind can sniff those traits out in individuals. We can sense them, but we can tell from the way that somebody talks, the words that they use, the way that they act, the gestures, the expressions. And therefore, if you imagine walking into a bar, anybody who was empathic lights up in, say, blue, and anybody who's a narcissist would light up in red. Now, a lesser and a mid-range would still notice the empathic individuals. They would notice the expressions that tell them this individual is caring. But the lesser just knows through instinct because he doesn't know what he is and he doesn't know that he needs these empathic individuals. But we have to sniff out those who are particularly empathic for a number of reasons. And the two primary reasons are those empathic traits mean those people are more susceptible to being seduced by our kind and they are also better at providing us with fuel or what some people call narcissistic supply, which is the lifeblood of the narcissist. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh-huh. So an, a normal person isn't, if you like, full of fuel and also they're less likely to be seduced because they don't particularly strongly believe in the concept of love or truth or honesty and therefore they are not as good a catch now they still have some fuel because they give out emotions Uh right right yeah so the normal person would be somebody that i might attach to myself as what i call a tertiary source So you might have a normal person who passes me in the street and I'm looking particularly sharp in my suit, etc. And this lady smiles at me because she finds me attractive. 
She gives me a little bit of fuel by that smiling because that is a positive emotional reaction by her to me. And as a consequence, I derive fuel from her. But she may be a normal. So as a consequence, there's a bit of fuel there, but she's not somebody that I would then necessarily target to try and draw them into a closer relationship with me. Whereas the empathic individuals, because they are easy, because they are more susceptible to being seduced and because they carry more fuel in them, some of them are absolute super tankers of fuel, they are prized targets for my kind. And there are a whole different variety of empathic individuals. You have the empath, the super empath, the codependent. And just recently, I've been writing about the empathic tendencies in terms of the carrier empath or the um, magnet empath. And I'll be continuing to write more about that in due course because they have particular tendencies which appeal to our kind as well. Now, as I say, the lesser and the mid-range narcissist just knows that they feel this attraction to this individual, but they don't understand necessarily why it is. They fulfill a need in them. I have a greater understanding because of my awareness, but also I have taken time in order to hone my skills and to become much more of an effective machine and in tandem with the work that I've done with my doctors to analyze what are these traits, to understand how they manifest and to understand why they're so attractive to us. And that's why I have been writing about these various classifications, which also helps people understand what they are and in turn assist them in understanding why they stand out like a neon sign to my kind. And that's and that brings us to why I wanted to have you back on the program. You have you you write about these experiences, and most importantly, you warn uh, people about your kind, about narcissists, mm -hmm. and about the symptoms. The uh, you know the, what I love about the work that you do is also that you remind people that you're not jealous, you're not insecure. You are in a relationship with a very manipulative person in particular mm -hmm. a, a narcissist and you and you try and get them you, you basically tell them to get out so yeah. that is the the redemption of 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 you hg which is why i you know because <laughs> I, I tell people about the show I, i'll i'll be honest with you i've done radio and um interviews for 15 years i've yes. been a radio producer for 15 years my absolute favorite show of my entire career was the first time was the the first program that I did with you because of the fact that number one I know it's going to help a lot of people that's true but number two mm -hmm. because there is there is a redemption within you that you are not only you're going through treatment but you're through your blogs and people can uh, check you out on I know HG Tudor you can check him out on uh, Facebook also you're on Twitter correct that's right yes and, and the blog can yes. be found at Narcsite, N-A-R-C-S-I-T-E, narcsite.com. Narcsite.com. And on Facebook, is it? it's Knowing the Narcissist, correct? That's right, yes. And I really encourage people to, along with this interview and sharing this interview, and also part one, to please do check out the blog because so many people are getting just much-needed help and validation because... Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Let's face it, HG. That there, when people and a lot of it seems to me, a lot of a lot of them are women. Although I know there are women narcissists. I know there's women narcissists, but mm -hmm. they their their hearts are absolutely shattered and and they're confused and they don't trust anyone anymore. 
So mm-hmm. I, I want to get into that aspect of, you know, why, w- when and why, or, no, let's just go back to when did you decide that you needed to come forward, either with, through the treatment or to come forward and and tell people about your kind and, and to warn them about about who you are and who others like you are? Okay. To an extent, I operate as a paradox because in real life, very few people know that I'm a narcissistic sociopath. And for the moment, I'm going to keep it that way because it would cause an adverse reaction, both in terms of my social life and also my professional life. So I am what I am and operate in the way that I do with very few people actually knowing what I am. The only people that do know in real life are my doctors and certain members of my scheming family. Now, in terms of the block, that operates as a sterile arena, if you will, which allows allows me to explain the way that I think and the way that I act. And the reason that came about was as a consequence of my engagement in treatment and I was forced into treatment I didn't do it voluntarily and my family because of the way that I had been behaving over apparently a number of years according to them albeit much of what they've said is based on lies and their uh, skewed perception however they posed essentially a situation to me whereby I would be denied something that I wanted if I didn't do it and I would also potentially face some form of criminal and regulatory investigation if I didn't do it. Now the investigations don't concern me because they have no basis but the time taken and the disruption that they would cause is something I don't want. So in order to achieve my long-term aims I agreed that I would undergo this treatment. And then, as part of this treatment, which was based on getting me to understand what I am, which I already knew, but it was then became more about understanding how I am what I am, why do I do what I do, what is the impact on other people, how that might be addressed, whether I should and ought to make changes and how those changes ought to be affected. And this has been going on for some time, but it was felt because in one of the early sessions with the good doctors, I explained that I enjoyed writing. And I showed them some of the work that I had done from a number of years ago and some more recent stuff. And they thought that it was rather good. And they suggested that it would be a useful exercise, almost like homework for me, if I was to write about what I am, but to do it in an anonymous fashion and to write books about it and to put it in a blog and write articles and basically provide my perspective. Now, of course, that appealed to me in the sense that it was anonymous, so it was not going to impact on my real-life uh, machinations and shenanigans. Right. It also appealed to, it also appealed to me because I like an audience. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yes, I thought, you do. well, why not? <laughs> and it also assisted me because the more that I've done it, the more I've learned about myself, It's enabled me to hone my skills, but also it has enabled me to engage with lots of very interesting people and learn from them. And I don't do it because I want to help anybody, because quite frankly, I really do not care. 
but I do it because when somebody sends me a message thanking me for opening their eyes, that provides me with fuel. Not a huge amount because I don't know who this person is, I've never met them, and they're communicating with me through an electronic medium. Right, so right. if that person was a, a friend who I knew who came up to me and tried to hug me, although I don't like being hugged, but if tried to hug me and explained, HG, you've opened my eyes to the terrible relationship I have with my wife, and I think she's a narcissist, I would get a huge amount of fuel from their gushing praise because they're there in front of me. But through the blog, I do get some fuel and I've never denied all of that, but that's not the primary primary reason for doing it. Part of it is because I wanted to be, be able to understand myself better. And I also wanted to other people to understand because what I've effectively been doing by sharing my knowledge has been weaponizing empaths. And it appeals to my perverse sense of humor <laughs> that, I, that, that I am, because I have this concept of believing myself and understanding myself to effectively omnipotent and able to affect everything around me because I must control my environment. Yes. It makes sense that if I can then say, right, I give you empath number one, the blessing of understanding. So now you can escape your narcissist. And I've set up a little battle going on somewhere and all around the world, these people are becoming um, enlightened and empowered. And that appeals to me that I'm able to do that because it fits in with my notion of power. And power is something that's particularly important to me. Now, if the byproduct of all of that is that they feel better about it, then so be it. It's a win-win. But um, And if they escape the worst of the behaviours that they've suffered so far and then can get themselves on a path moving forward, so be it. Good for them. And they will then praise me and they will tell other people about it and more people will come to the blog. And so ultimately... I gain more understanding because I read everything that everybody posts on the blog because 98% of the contributions are very interesting, people's different experiences, and there are some bright people that post there and they have their own views and opinions of why narcissists behave as they do and empaths behave as they do. I lay out the facts of the way that I behave. I lay out the facts of how we are perceived. I lay out the facts of why we do as what we do so people can understand it. And once they understand, they can then take the appropriate measures to then try and counter what has happened to them and to escape from it. But it's been a it's a an ongoing process. I'm still a work in process, according to the good doctors, and I'm finding the interactions fascinating. I find them absolutely fascinating. I mean, just uh, mind-blowing because it's almost like a magician. It's almost like a, a, a magician telling the public what the mag how 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 other mag how magicians do these tricks. And absolutely, that's that's, <laughs> that's a good point because oddly enough, somebody did ask me uh, and made it that very same point. Christine was to say, "You are like the magician who's giving away how the how the tricks are performed." aren't the other magicians going to get annoyed with you? And the answer to that is, 
most of the other magicians don't know that they are magicians. And even, <laughs> and, and even if they were annoyed with me, what do I care? Because there's no loyalty amongst narcissists. And it feeds, and 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 even if they were angry with you, it still would feed the. It, it still feeds you, right? It doesn't. Does Absolutely it, right. Does, it, it would be fuel. Right. So, it does, so it does, this is what it, this is what's amazing. This is what's wild to me. Is so the fuel can be. Hmm. Of course, it can be gushing love and and uh, you know um, attraction and uh, someone flirting with you, falling in love with you, yes. um, all of that that energy. But then mm-hmm. also you get a charge, you get a feeding off of the mm-hmm. um, emotional distress or anger. So so Absolutely. let's talk about that um, if we can. Let's go into that a little bit and and and. Let's also remind our listeners, too. I want to just let them know that I'm speaking with H.G. Tudor. He uh, has an incredible platform. I hope that you can check it out on Facebook and also Twitter. On Facebook, it's Knowing the Narcissist. It's a daily blog available on both, again, Twitter and Facebook. And let's talk, H.G., about that, the feeding of both the the positive praise and attraction mm-hmm. and then also the... Um, the emotional, the you know, the anger, the the lashing out, and things like that from from the victims that that fall prey to you. Okay, fuel comes in many forms, and it comes from various sources. The best sources are empathic sources, because the emotional output is stronger from those individuals. As you've identified, it can be positive in nature. So a very strong form of positive fuel is for somebody to say to me, HG, I love you. That is a very, very strong um, expression of positive fuel towards me. Yes. Also, if somebody, for example, buys me a gift, that, although they don't say anything, that action is positive in nature. We also gain negative fuel. And therefore, if you are angry, if you are crying, you're frustrated, you're upset, we gain this charge, this negative from you. And many people seem to think that if they were to turn around and say to the narcissist, you're a P of S, you're a complete bastard, I hate you, that somehow the narcissist is going to be offended and hurt by that. Now, what we will do is we will act like it's hurt us, we will act offended because we've identity fuel. So we'll argue back with you to make you give us even more fuel. And so when you send a text saying, I am a disgusting human being who has no regard for anybody else and I'm self-centered and you hate me and you wish I was dead, I gain fuel from that because in my mind, I think of you sat there upset and angry writing that text. Yes. And I what's known as thought fuel from that. If you're stood next to me, sobbing your heart out, saying, please stop hurting me, I get proximate fuel, and that's the stronger type. And any form of emotional reaction provides fuel. And the reason for this is that I have to be validated by everything around me. I can't fuel myself. I can be on my own for a period of time if I've had plenty of fuel beforehand, I can be on my own if I'm in contact with people, say, through Skype or through messages. I could be completely on my own with no telephone or no electronic device if I've been fueled beforehand. But ordinarily, because of this vast void that operates inside of me, 
I have no capability to fuel myself. You can. You have that capability. Empathic people have that capability. I've been created without it. And what I have to do is ineffectively feed off and leech off everybody else's emotions to validate my own existence. And so the worst thing that can ever happen to me is that I walk in a room and everybody ignores me. Uh Because to my mind, not only are you not giving me fuel, that is a massive criticism and it wounds me. And so there are many things that normal people do who do not think that they've done anything wrong, but the narcissist goes berserk because the narcissist perceives it as a criticism. And it's usually actions rather than words that cause it. Because when you say something to a narcissist, you invariably inject some emotion in what you're saying because of your expression of your face and the the tone of your voice. So even if you're, you know, so even if you say to a narcissist, I hate you and I think you're an awful human being, your brow will be furrowed, your jaw might be jutting out. So we can see that's anger on your part and that provides us with the fuel. So the key, if you ever want to wound us, would be to say in as neutral tone as you can muster with a neutral expression, I hate you, I think you are insignificant. Uh, that right. is a critic, and that really wounds us. But it's even easier for you to do it through actions. So if you ignore us, that is a huge criticism. If you serve us last in a queue at the bar, that is a criticism to us. Even though we might have been last in the queue, that doesn't matter to us. We think we should be served first because of our huge sense of entitlement. So there's lots of little gestures and actions that people would regard as completely innocuous. But to us, they are criticisms. And that wounds us because it reminds us of the sense of being weak and unimportant and helpless and takes us back to a place many years ago that we would that we try to bury and forget about. And that, that leads me to my next question for you. I, I think most most people who are listening to this are saying like why the, the the big question is why why they understand that they can understand wrap their head around the fuel part and and the gaining fuel mm-hmm. from the emotional upset uh the triggering that that a narcissist does to an empath but i think the biggest question is why do you do what you do it, it and and we had gone about over this before about is a narcissist just born a narcissist or is one created and if you can let our listeners know what your what, what you've dis, what you've discovered through your treatment and through your journey mm-hmm. about how a narcissist becomes a narcissist how a person becomes a narcissist i have identified if you will several schools of thought in that regard um some of it has arisen from the interesting comments that have post, been posted on the blog whereby there are those who say that it is a genetic uh, predisposition um, and it's genetics that causes us to be the way that we are. I found that view to be in the minority. There are then other views which have been expressed that suggest that the genetics create a susceptibility to becoming a narcissist, but it doesn't necessarily follow that that will happen. So if you like, it's almost like a latent thing 
within a particular individual which may be activated or is not activated. And then the majority view that I've come across, and this is certainly applicable to my own experience, is that it is environmental factors, namely the way that one has been parented and the way that one childhood, one's childhood developed. And essentially, I know from what happened to me when I was a child, much of which I tend not to want to think about and gets pulled out of me by the good doctors, and I find it difficult to talk about. But <clears throat> essentially, because of events that um, I suffered as a child in the way that I was treated, particularly by my mother, my narcissism arose as a self-defense mechanism to help me cope with feeling powerless when I was, in effect, if you will, little HG. And I was expected to be a particularly high attainer, and I was. Academically, I was often at the top of the class. I excelled at sport, but I was never good enough. And the discipline that I faced and the isolation and admonishment and the repeated um, put-downs and the lack of love that I was shown, I was I'd never, I can never recall being hugged by my mother. I never heard her say, I love you, to me. And my father, people say that he was a good man. He's, he's dead now. But people, um, he, I've understood, was effectively in the thrall of my mother and was both strong in that he stayed there, but weak because he never did anything about it. With regard to me, right. he seemed to spend most of his time protecting my um, half-brother, and my brother and my sister. And he essentially said to me that he felt that I was perfectly capable of looking after myself. As a child. So in a sense, as a, as he, a little boy. Right. As a little boy. So in a sense, he abandoned me and left me at the um, mercy of my narcissistic mother. Now, what I saw was the way that she behaved, and also there are other narcissists in my family, two of my uncles are narcissists as well, and I saw the way that people kowtowed to them, I saw the way that my father scurried around after my mother, I saw the way that people in the community were both respectful and fearful of the Tudor family, and I witnessed power. And I realised that in order to stop feeling lost, and in order to gain the approval that I'd always sought, that the most effective thing to do would be to seize that power. And I essentially had one of the best teachers in my mother. And so I copied what she did. And I saw the way that she treated people. I began to understand, not fully because I was at this stage a teenager, but not fully, but I knew that she manipulated people and I watched and I've written about some of this in the blog, and I'll be going into much more detail about it in certain works that are in progress called Matronarch and Little Boy Lost, which will tell everybody about the full extent of what I endured as a child. And it is interesting because if you had asked me about this the last time, I wouldn't have wanted to talk to you about it. And I think that now... I anticipated that it would come up as a subject and I ensured that before 
we started this discussion, I was particularly well fueled so that dealing with talking about this subject because it makes me feel uncomfortable, it makes me feel restless and reminds me of the person that I no longer associate myself with. I created a different HG, one who is powerful, one that is invulnerable, one that is superior. And I understand from my work with the good doctors that that was my self-defense mechanism. Of course. And they have now been looking at ways to try and cause me to slowly relinquish that mindset. And, of course, the we have a something of an impasse because I am an effective machine. I'm very, very good at what I do. I'm surrounded by people. I'm charming and magnetic. And I am find it very easy to engage with people because I have to in order to get the fuel and that's what protects me and therefore I say to myself why should I stop doing something that protects me and is effective why should I stop doing something that I know that works right why should I why should I take that risk because I as yet and I'm keeping an open mind about it because I have seen subtle changes in my in my thought process at the very least why should I take the risk of doing something which could cause me a problem mm. wow HG that was um, that I think just that explanation that real honest explanation of what you're going through is very powerful not only mm-hmm. not only for not only for for the victims of narcissists, but in particular for fellow narcissists who are listening to this right now, because well, uh, it's it's. I mean, and I and I know, and again, I know you don't you don't care about really necessarily helping anyone <laughs> get through this, yes. but for your own for your own evolution, because as I mm-hmm. had said before too, it has to be very lonely. Yes, I mean you're surrounded by people that give you the fuel and they praise you, and that's by design. But at the same time, it must be extremely, extremely lonely place. And perhaps somewhere within you, you know you need to heal. And it, does, and it doesn't has nothing to do with anybody else. But it's just for you and your own peace of mind. I understand that um, mindset. And it has been said to me in different ways by different people. Um, I do not consider myself to be lonely at all. And I know this is something often that's thrown at me by victims who basically say, well, you, you, you are just a lonely man and you'll grow old. And when your powers fade, you'll be on your own and you'll die terrified and sad. Well, no, I won't. It's because quite simply, I have honed and refined what I am so that I am able to engage with people. Last few days, I've spent in Scotland, um, a combination of business and seeing some friends. And whilst there, I was staying in this lovely country house hotel, very old. And as soon as I arrived, I was talking to the head receptionist there, who became very friendly with me, and then one of the staff. And I got on extremely well with them. And they would come into my room and ask, is there anything you need? And they'd stop and they'd talk and so on. So I'm able to draw people to me so that I never feel lonely. And 
yes, I do some and have done and do some terrible things to people, but not everybody, because I am in sufficient control of my abilities to know when and where to unleash my dark side. And that invariably is against those that cross me and those who fail to give me what I want. But those that serve a purpose and those that um, contribute to what I require, the maintenance of my facade, of me being a good guy, I will treat those people well. I will do things for them because it serves my benefit. And so I'm surrounded by people. People are drawn to me and people like me. Yes, there are people who hate me, those who've crossed me and ex-partners of mine who I've callously discarded in the past. Some still love me. Some are, some like me. Some hate me. A couple would rather me be dead. But all of that's fuel to me because it's all attention. Yes. If they were indifferent to me, I would hate it. But I'm never lonely. And nor am I going to become lonely because I've always got the capability and the um, capacity to, to keep people to me. Is part of that also having the mask of when when you're around people that that they think that you that that they don't they don't think of you as a narcissist if they don't know you you know really well but they think of you <laughs> they think of you as a fellow empath do you have that mask where you pretend to be empathic or do you even need I to can, do you even need to do I can that? I can feign empathy because I know what it looks like but I don't feel it right so I know how to put on an express a concerned expression I know how to look sympathetic now, there are times when, because I don't feel it, and my immediate response when I see somebody perhaps fall over is one of revulsion for their weakness and, their, and spite at their clumsiness. But then, within a matter of seconds, or even shorter time period, I realise that if I was to laugh at them or sneer, that would not be an appropriate response in respect of the other people that are around me. And therefore they would think, why is that man or why is HG just laughing at that lady who's fallen over in the street? So I know that the appropriate response, because I've seen it so many times from other people, is to look concerned and to come out with some mealy mouth platitude as to, oh, are you all right? Or here, let me help you up, because then that makes me look good. But the brutal honesty is I really don't care. And if I had somewhere else I needed to get to, which I viewed as more important, I would step over her in the street and carry on in my way. Mm. I'm feeling, especially with this current election that we've had, well, and in general, because I, I think that a lot of politicians are narcissists, but some of the some of the people that, that rise to the highest levels of government globally, I mean, I think that they might be also on the, the higher threshold, on further to the right of, of narcissists, sociopathic narcissists. Yes, I, I agree with you. And the reason for that is if you lead a country, you are a, or a captain of industry, whereby you are the chairman or CEO right. of a um, listed company. To get to that point, you will have had to have compete, competed with various other people. Those people will have tried to pull you off the ladder as you try to clamber up. If you were burdened by guilt at firing somebody because they were incompetent who was your friend, 
your business would not be as effective. If you were troubled by remorse about having spoken in a high-handed manner to a colleague because they'd failed to submit a report on time, your business would not be succeeding. If you were worried about what was happening in a village on the border because troops were amassing, you're more than likely would start to see your country being overrun. And those with empathic traits, such as honesty and decency and caring for others, guilt, uh, experience sorrow and remorse, I acknowledge that those are held up as laudable traits, and they certainly are in certain spheres, but they are not if you want to get to the top and my kind have been created devoid of these particular emotions and focused on success and focused on getting the job done, of not caring if her feelings are hurt and not caring that you've just fired your friend. It doesn't matter. The needs of the business must come first. And consequently, those who are political leaders, captains of industry, often the very best in show business, um, pop stars, sportsmen, etc., are highly narcissistic because those narcissistic qualities mean two things. One, you're not held back by the empathic traits, and two, the drive that comes with narcissism means you want to succeed. Now, it doesn't mean that every narcissist is successful. Far from it. The lesser narcissist is invariably not because their cognitive function doesn't assist them in that way. They are not particularly bothered about being physically superior. All they care about is that their belly is full and they have a roof over their head, for example, and that they have somebody run around after them. That would be a victim narcissist, as I call them. So not every narcissist is going to be successful, but I would say that a lot of successful people have strong narcissistic traits and it's particularly the case with leaders. Well, in particular, to have a lack, a complete lack of empathy, it mm -hmm. makes it, it makes it quite easy to bomb another country, to kill people in war, to that's right, to loot, to, to loot the treasury, to take away people's pensions or whatever. If you have no empathy, it doesn't, mm -hmm. it doesn't, uh, it doesn't keep you up at night. Doesn't make that's you know, absolutely right? absolutely right. There's two interesting examples of that. Um, <clears throat> there was a tycoon in this country called Robert Maxwell. He was a newspaper magnate, very wealthy man. And what he did was he raided the pension fund of his newspaper empire and stole money from pensioners, um, many, many millions of pounds. And he did it because he regarded that money as his because he had created the company. He had no conscience. And his narcissistic tendencies there manifested on a huge scale. He was entitled to that money. He had no sense of remorse. He didn't recognize any kind of boundary. That money was his to use as he saw fit, and he plundered it to plug a hole in the uh, operating arm of his businesses. Mm -hmm. And that same man, on a completely different scale, was witnessed by his three children who came downstairs on Christmas morning to find that he couldn't wait to discover what his wife had purchased for the children for Christmas and they came down to find their dad sat underneath the Christmas tree with all of the presents opened and him sat looking at the toys. 
he cared more about knowing wow. about what those toys were than the joy of his children opening them. And that shows the, exactly the mindset of an individual. And Maxwell was clearly a narcissistic sociopath. And another example was that in this country, I think it was during the 1960s when the Cold War was at its height, that the government considered that post after a nuclear exchange, that sociopaths should, have be, should be put in charge of the rebuilding of the country because they would suffer less ill effects arising from the trauma of a nuclear Armageddon and also they would get the job done and would not be concerned about seeing people starving to death or dying of radiation and so on and that they would be the best people to get the job done. And that's quite interesting that a government paper looked at and identified that sociopathic individuals should be put in a place of trust and responsibility in terms of rebuilding a country after nuclear war. So even the own government recognised that there was a, in inverted commas, good that can come out of a sociopathic individual. Wow. <laughs> so wow. that is why, as I say, we, our kind, get the job done. Now, of course, it all depends on your mindset. Some people will say that the cost associated with doing that is not acceptable. Yeah. My kind always say it always is. The end always justifies the means. Empathic individuals would say, no, the rights of an individual, their feelings, um, their emotions should be taken into account. You cannot chuck them to one side. But it, it raises an interesting debate, and I quite happily have that with people, but they will always lose because at the end of the day, I will always do what serves me best. Exactly. And that's um, that's where I want to take this uh, now, too. We have a little bit of time remaining, and I want to mm -hmm. direct this to the victims, to your victims, to victims of narcissists, in particular elite narcissists, sociopathic mm -hmm. narcissists, because people who are listening to this, invariably, the majority are people who have come in contact with, uh, with those of your kind who have been through marriages, uh, relationships, um, all kinds of different connections with you. And I want you to talk directly to them about getting out, how to get out. How do they, mm -hmm. how do they break free from a charming, manipulative, lying, destructive individual? How do they break free from you? The simple answer is to arm yourself with understanding. We want to keep you emotional because when you're emotional, you will make poor decisions, you will remain confused, and you will make no progress. Therefore, what you must do is understand what it is you're dealing with, why this person thinks as they do, why they act in the way that they do. Once you start to understand, you will not like it, but you will start to realize why they do as they do. Because we look at everything from a different perspective than from anybody else. And that's what many people struggle with. They cannot understand why this person who was so loving two weeks ago is now so horrible. They're not, they think a normal person just wouldn't do that. And they're right, a normal person wouldn't do, but a narcissist would. Read, read everything you can. Once you realize that something is wrong, and often this happens when the devaluation period is ongoing, but most usually 
it's when that person has been cast to one side by the narcissist and the narcissist has risen, ridden into the sunset and got a new partner. The victim needs to read about what has happened so they can understand that one, none of it is their fault. Two, everything happened through instinct, calculation and design. And that is part of the narcissistic dynamic. And that we want you to remain emotionally brittle. We will come back if you give us the opportunity to make your life a misery once again. Although at first when we come back, it'll all be unicorns and rainbows again for a short period of time. But it will not last. But understand this. The person that you fell in love with was not real. It was an illusion. It hurts. I know it hurts because I've seen it in the eyes of my victims. Understand that you've taken a large step forward. Then read. Read my books. Read other people's books. But more importantly, read my books. Read those and you'll understand the mindset. And in that understanding, you will also learn about ways that you can counter what we do. The best person to tell you how to deal with somebody like me is me. And then you'll read. And because if you read, you'll be distracted from worrying about us. And then you'll start to get your strength back. And if you read, you'll start to make decisions which are based on logic, cold, hard, effective decisions. And you'll stop acting emotionally. You won't get rid of all of the emotion immediately because that's the nature of an empathic individual. But you will then eventually purge the emotional infection that we've caused with you. You'll drive it out and each day you'll make progress. But the key to it always is to understand. And the way to understand is to read. And then you can also seek help if you've suffered other symptoms, which are not things that I am qualified to talk about in terms of post-traumatic stress disorder. Go and see a healthcare professional about that type of thing. Perhaps go and see a therapist to deal with those types of things. But in terms of actually getting out, understand what you're dealing with. Read, and it's all there. So then you can make the right decisions. Come to my blog, interact, ask me any questions you like. I will get around to answering them. It might take me a few days, it might take me a week, but I will answer them for you. You can also arrange to consult with me privately as well. There's a cost associated with that, but many people have done it and they found it to be very effective to help their understanding. But that is the central thing. Understand. And once you understand, everything will start to fall in place. And then you'll think, right, now I grasp what it is. I don't like it. I hate him. I hate her. But now I understand what it is. I can move forward and make sense of things. Because that we rely on keeping you stupid, if you will. Keeping you in the dark. Keeping you spinning round and round. And then we keep coming back and doing it over and over again. You can stop it. I've seen it happening. I've seen the evolution of people on my blog, of their understanding. And I've also seen the messages that they've sent me in terms of how effective they found what I've disclosed to them to help them. But reading and understanding is the key. This is why I wanted you back, HG. <laughs> Just that last final comment. I mean, that, that, that's, that is exactly why. Folks, we've had H.G. Tudor on. He is a self-proclaimed narcissist sociopath, and he does share his observations and his platforms, Knowing the Narcissist, which is a daily blog available on Twitter and Facebook. Read. 
uh, listen, trust what he is saying right now. It is absolutely important if you find yourself in a relationship or connection with someone like HG that you do read and you learn about what you're going through and how you can free yourself as well. So thank you, yes. HG. Uh, yeah. uh, sorry, Christy, I'll just add there, if I may. Yes. That even people may be listening and may not know whether they're entangled with a narcissist or not. If you find yourself in a relationship where things do not make sense, you find yourself, you are being belittled, abused in some kind of fashion. It doesn't mean that person is necessarily a narcissist, but there's a pretty good chance that they are. And therefore, as a consequence, even if you may not know whether they are a narcissist or not, if something doesn't feel right about the relationship or you feel that you're suffering some kind of abuse arising from it, look into the work and read further. And you may find that certain light bulbs come on and you realize, yes, that is what I'm dealing with. And then you can get out. You do not automatically look at somebody and go, I'm with a narcissist. It tends to be more the symptoms of it, the confusion, the despair, the abuse, etc., which cause you to start down the line of looking for things to tell you what is causing these silent treatments, what is causing these sudden eruptions of anger and violence. Why is he having affairs? Why does he not speak to me? It's those types of things. And eventually, as you learn about those weapons that are utilized by abusive individuals, it will more times than not lead you to realize that you're entangled with a narcissist. Not always, but more often than not. Thank you so much, HG. You're um, very welcome. I want to, again to remind people that you can check out HG Tudor's work on, on Twitter and Facebook. It's Knowing the Narcissist. And also, HG, give out the website again. Um, the blog can be found at Narcsite. That's N-A-R-C. S-I-T-E dot com, narcsite.com. And the blog is probably the best place to come to because there's the greatest uh, level of interaction there as well. Thank you again, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for today's show, folks. We're going to have HG. I know we're going to have you back on, HG, because we're going to get a lot of um, comments about this. And I always welcome you back anytime that you have something that you want to get off your chest and you want to talk about, I, I welcome you back. <laughs> I'll always be happy to do that. So uh, just let me know. Thank you, Christine. I know because you like to be the center of attention. <laughs> Absolutely. Why not? <laughs> Thank you again so much. It's been H.C. Tudor here on Out of the Box Radio. I want to remind listeners to tune in again next week for another installment of Out of the Box Radio. You can also subscribe to this program so you don't miss any episodes at iTunes and also iHeartRadio. Until next week, remember to always think outside of the box. Bye for now.